Well, good morning, church. You can go ahead and open in your Bible to Psalm 22. That's where we're going to be today. We're ending our, uh, our series, Seeing God in the Psalms. I hope it's been a blessing for you. Psalm 22, a couple of things are happening, and it makes me think about something that's happened to me a couple of months ago. I was on a short-term trip to Kuala Lumpur with a, a short-term trip from Brook Hills or a group of six or seven of us that went over there, and we were spending time with some of our long-term and our mid-term partners partners in Kuala Lumpur. And we had a really great trip. It was a really great trip, but we only, we only had one fight the entire time that we were out there. And so I want to tell you about the fight because it's significant, okay? And if, you, if you've been on a mission trip before, you know how unique it is to only have one fight, right? That never happens, right? So we only had one argument. Here's the argument, okay? Every single time I went to a new airport, I wanted to get a Starbucks mug from that airport to prove that I had been there, Okay. So I wanted to go to China and Denmark. I wanted a Starbucks mug in every single one of those. And all of my team, all the team that we were with said, you're not allowed to do that. That's cheating, right? And some of you are already nodding your head. I saw you over there. You're saying that's cheating, right? They said that's cheating. You have to spend time in the country if you're going to get the mug. So I buckled under their pressure and I never got a Starbucks mug in all those countries. But I knew Once I got to Kuala Lumpur, once I spent the entire week in Kuala Lumpur, I earned that mug, right? I earned that mug. And so when we got to Kuala Lumpur on the way back, I knew I was going to go to the airport and I knew I was going to get that mug. But while I was in Kuala Lumpur, one of the partners over there, I think it was Laura Sullen, said to me, when you go there, make sure you get the new mug, The new mug has all of the new stuff in Kuala Lumpur and all of the old stuff there, the Patronus Towers and all of the markets and the cobblestone streets and all that kind of stuff. So make sure you go get that one. So when I went to the Starbucks at the Kuala Lumpur airport on my way out, I looked for that mug, I got it. And y'all, it's amazing. I absolutely love it. I drink from it and this is what I do. In the morning when I drink from that mug, I look at it and in three seconds, I turn it around and I can see all of the city just like that. I can see, I don't know, all the city, you know what I'm saying. In three seconds, they have told me the story of that city. Now, why am I telling you this story, okay? The reason I'm saying this is that I think that Psalm 22 does something like that for us today. In 32 verses, we have something really extraordinary, and it's your first little uh, write-in thing here. These verses take us, and I'm sorry you have to write so much, I didn't realize I had done that, so... I'm sorry, some of you are like, it's nine o'clock, bro. Come on, sorry. Here's all of the underlines though, and this isn't telling us a lot about it, and we're gonna dive into it in a minute, but you need to know uh, what it's doing, what this uh, whole psalm is doing, and it's up here on your screen, okay? This psalm takes us from Good Friday to Easter Sunday to Christ's active ministry among the church, and then his resounding praise to the nations and the generations. I probably need to give you like three minutes to write that down. Again, I'm sorry. Let me just say it one more time though as you're writing. So this Psalm takes us from Good Friday to Easter Sunday to Christ's active ministry among the church and then his resounding praise to all the nations and the generations. You know, the people that designed that mug knew what was most important about the city, didn't they? (laughs) They put that mug together knowing what is most important about the city so that when you turn it around, you see three seconds, 
I've got a picture, I've got a vision of what the city is like. In the same way, I think that because God loves this story so much, he wants us to have hundreds of years before it ever happened, he wants us to have a picture of all of these events. Good Friday, Easter Sunday. It's like, listen to this, it's like God is overflowing in love for this story so much that it shows up even before it happens. So we are right now going to take a moment. We're gonna read the first 21 verses of Psalm 22 and then we're gonna dive into the text, okay? So if you will, go ahead, open up your Bible, turn it on, turn to Psalm 22. I'm gonna read this. My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Why are you so far from my deliverance and from my words of groaning? My God, I cry to you by day, but you do not answer by night, yet I have no rest. But you are holy and throned on the praises of Israel. Our fathers trusted in you. They trusted and you rescued them. They cried to you and were set free. They trusted in you and were not disgraced. But I, I am a worm and not a man. Scorned by mankind, despised by people. Everyone who sees me mocks me. They sneer and shake their heads. He relies on the Lord. Let him save him. Let the Lord rescue him since he takes pleasure in him. It was you who brought me out of the womb, making me secure on my mother's breast. I was given over to you at birth. You have been my God from my mother's womb. So don't be far from me because distress is near and there is no one to help. Many bulls surround me, strong ones of Bashan encircle me. They open their mouths against me, lions mulling and roaring. I am poured out like water and all my bones are disjointed. My heart is like wax melting within me. My strength is dried up like baked clay. My tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You put me into the dust of death. For dogs have surrounded me and a gang of evildoers has closed in on me. They pierce my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. People look and stare at me. They divide my my garments among themselves and they cast lots for my clothing. But you, Lord, don't be far away. My strength, come quickly to help me. Rescue my life from the sword, my only life from the power of these dogs. Save me from the lion's mouth, from the horns of the wild oxen. You answered me. Praise God, you answered me. Before we talk through this psalm and what it means, I want us to give a, uh, give a little bit of background to what's happening here. I said a moment ago that this psalm goes from Easter Sunday all the way to, I'm sorry, from Good Friday all the way to Easter Sunday. And is, this fact has led some people to call this the fifth gospel. And what we have in Psalm 22 is not so much a narration of all of these events so much as the emotion of them from the eyes of our Savior. You probably noticed in Psalm 22 as I read it, some of the quotations that show up in the gospel accounts. I'm gonna remind you of a few of them. Why have you forsaken me, right? God crying that out, Jesus crying that out on the cross. The people mock me and shake their heads at me. They've pierced my hands and my feet. They divide my garments. So what is obvious as we read through this text is that although David wrote this psalm, these events go way past anything that ever happened in his life. So it's right for us to put these words on the lips of Jesus. 
All of those facts read this writer to say these words about Psalm 22. These words are going to be up on the screen. Listen to what this writer says about Psalm 22. I think it's going to be on the screen. A really careful reading of Psalm 22 will make clear that it is not safe to read its details in any other light. What what are we talking about there? Reading it and putting it on the lips of Jesus. So because safety first is a core value here, we don't want to do that, right? So we want to be safe. We want to put them on the lips of Jesus. And we're going to look at this as Jesus speaking these words from Psalm 22. So the first fill in the blank here is shrouded by suffering. Jesus was shrouded by suffering. There was a covering of suffering over him. You know, the first 21 verses of this chapter are filled with such anguish, Angry animals, angry people are after him, but it's not just the animals and the gangs that are leading to all of this suffering. David says, I reaching out, I'm reaching out for the rope that used to be there. I'm reaching for a ladder that's always been there, that where there once used to be help and hope and strength, now I'm reaching for it. And all I hear back from heaven is silence. There is silence from God, the silence of God. I think that's another fill in the blank there. We hear Jesus crying this out, God, why have you abandoned me? Now don't, now you don't even need to be a churchgoer to recognize these words, right? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And these words that uh, Jesus says, they're at once both mysterious and beautiful, aren't they? They're mysterious because we wonder why is Jesus asking the question, why? Like his whole ministry, he's been explaining this, hasn't he? He's been explaining to people over and over again what would happen to him and why. Listen to an example of when this happens in Mark chapter nine. I put these words up on the screen from Mark nine. He says, for for he was teaching his disciple and telling them, the son of man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men. They will kill him, and after he is killed, he will rise on the third day. But they did not understand this statement, and they were afraid to ask him. Now, what's the picture that we have in the Gospels? The disciples didn't know what was going on. They were afraid to ask. The Pharisees didn't know what was going on. But Jesus, he knew what was going on, right? Listen to what Stephen Wellam says about these words. I think this is so helpful. He says, Jesus is the divine son who has chosen to die, chosen to be declared guilty, although innocent, and chose to obey his father's will to save his people from their sins. So let me ask you this question. Has Jesus lost all memory of what he knows to be true on the cross? No, Jesus is not having theological curiosity on the cross. When Jesus says, why? He is saying, why in agony? He's saying, why in anguish? You know, this is one of the most horrific moments in the history of all the world. Jesus, who is fully God and fully man, is bearing the unbearable price for our sins. He's experiencing in his body the white hot wrath of God, wrath that he doesn't deserve, wrath that has to be poured out on him so that he can pay for our sins. And it's not just this verse that conveys this longing. Look back down at your Bible. Verse two, he says this, I cry to you by day, but you don't answer. Verse 11, Don't be far from me because distress is near. Verse 19, look at that. Don't be far away. 
The wrath of God meant that fellowship was no longer there for Jesus. Just think about this. What life for Jesus was like daily. It says in the gospel so many times that he woke up early in the morning and he went away and he would pray, right? He would spend time fellowshipping with God. Think about when Jesus was baptized, what happened there? He didn't ask for this, but all of a sudden, what happened? God the Father shows up and he's speaking and the Spirit of God shows up right? He didn't even ask for it. It was there. Fellowship was so essential to his ministry. But now on the cross, Jesus cries out. And what does he hear from heaven? He hears silence, right? You know, the only thing worse than getting in an argument with somebody is getting the silent treatment from them, right? (laughs) Have you ever been there? Just knowing that something is going on in the relationship, there's something going on and you're not telling me what's going on. I picking up that something's going on, but you're not talking to me about it. At least when we're arguing, at least when we're going back and forth, I know what's going on. But when you go silent, I'm completely lost. I have no way of knowing what's going on. You know, so many of us can relate to this feeling, can't we? This feeling expressed by Jesus on the cross. Some of you in this room, I know your stories, so I know this is true. Some of you in this room have prayed for years for God to help you, and what you feel like you hear back from God is silence. You've asked God to deliver you from a temptation. There's a crippling anxiety that doesn't seem to ever go away. There's this physical or there's a medical problem that only God can help. And yet when you cry out to him, you sense silence. One of my favorite singer-songwriters, a guy named Andrew Peterson, wrote a song years ago called The Silence of God. I'm gonna put one of the verses up on the screen for you because I think it just, it so captures this feeling that we have. It says this, it's enough to drive a man crazy It'll break a man's faith. It's enough to make him wonder if he's ever been sane when he's bleating for comfort from thy staff and thy rod and the heaven's only answer is the silence of God. Friends, there's a lot of things that we're gonna say about these verses, but one of the things I think that we need to hear loud and clear this morning is that Jesus understands our sadness when we sense the silence of God because he too sensed the silence of God. Friends, he's an understanding savior, so I wanna encourage you, even now, run to him. But friends, it wasn't just the suffocating feeling of the silence of God, it was also the scorn of the people. I think that's your next underline there. The scorn of the people that adds to this shrouding of suffering. Look at verses six to eight. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by people. Everyone who sees me mocks me. You know, the gospel writers pick up this quote in Psalm 22 and they say this again. They add some detail and a little bit of color, but they say this in Matthew chapter 27. I'm gonna read this to you. Those who passed by him were yelling insults at him. They were shaking their heads at him and saying, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you're the son of God, come down from the cross And in the same way, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders mocked him and said, he saved others, but he can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him if he takes pleasure in him. Have you ever played that game, the uh, 
what kind of animal would you be game? Have you ever played that game with other people, right? So years ago, I remember a bunch of people played this game, a bunch of gals rather, played this game with my wife and she was telling me about it later and they said, Danielle is like a dolphin, right? And so she, she's like happy and she just kind of swims up and down, up and down. But then every now and then she can go relationally deep and just swim down deep with you. And I thought, that's like one of the sweetest things I've ever heard about my wife. It's so true and I absolutely love it. I've played this game before and every time I I play with a bunch of dudes. You know what they say? I'm like a lion. That's, that's probably the best description of me, right? I'm like a bear, right? You ever play this game with kids and they're like, I feel like I'm a unicorn or something like that, right? I have never played this game with a bunch of people where somebody says, I feel like a worm, <laughs> right? I, I'm, I'm kind of like a worm. I feel sub human like a worm. And that's what Jesus says on the cross. I feel like a worm here. I feel like I could just be trampled underfoot at any minute and no one would ever even pay attention. Nobody even knows. But, and what's the gist of all of the mocking happening here? Jesus says, Jesus said, I'm fully relying on the Lord. The Lord is going to save me, but now in the silence of God, it looks as though God just pulled a fast one on him, right? He's nowhere to be found. Have you thought about why laughing and mocking is so difficult for us to take? Have you thought about that? Like, I think it's because people are saying, you're so foolish. You're so thoughtless. You thought that God was going to be coming through for you. You have put your trust in the wrong place. High schoolers, I think that this is one of the reasons why it is so difficult for some of you to make a stand for God at your school. Because people just, they mock you. And then it might even not be verbal, right? It's just kind of that raised eyebrow like, oh, you're one of those guys, right? You're one of those weirdos, huh? that mocking that comes to us. Listen to this quote by Martin Luther. I love this quote, and I thought it was so helpful. Satan has not a more deadly dart for wounding the souls of men than when he endeavors to dislodge hope from our minds by turning the promises of God into ridicule from others. Now, I, if anyone in this room has the ability to talk to you about what it feels like to be mocked, I feel like I'm a pretty good candidate, and I want to give you my credentials, okay? Here we go. I grew up in Cleveland, Ohio. Okay, I need to give you more. All right, here we go. I grew up in Cleveland, Ohio. Our city is called, was called, is called the mistake by the lake, okay? I remember hearing the story of in the 60s, a river that goes through Cleveland, Ohio, the Cuyahoga River, caught on fire, okay? It's a body of water, it caught on fire, okay? I remember in 1986 and 87, John Elway broke our hearts in the AFC Championship, broke our hearts, the Cleveland Browns, and wouldn't let us get into the Super Bowl. If you go today to the Google and you put in these words, okay? Michael Jordan, the shot. Of all of the shots Michael Jordan ever made, the shot that's gonna come up on the Google is this one. When he shoots over Craig Elo as time expires in game five of the Eastern Conference Finals in 1989, breaking our hearts, right? 
So of anybody in this, I, I should not have been born in Cleveland as a sports fan in the 80s and the 90s, right? I should have been from Denver or from Chicago. Now, why am I saying this? If you're the one being mocked, don't you feel comfort by talking to someone who has also been mocked? Like all of the old Miss fans in the room feel comfortable with me now, right? Oh, that was like such a jab. I'm sorry. I didn't mean it. I kind of meant it, but I don't mean it. Okay, here we go. If you're picked on, if you're ridiculed, if you're mocked, the last person you go to to be comforted is the person that seems like they have everything together. Like nothing's ever happened in their life, right? Friends, I hope a picture of Jesus is becoming so clear to you today. He has experienced the silence of God. He's endured the scorn of the people. And so you can run to him. Friends, run to him. Let him be your help. I want us to also see that Jesus was sustained by truth. That's the next underline there. He was sustained by truth. I want us to see something else that I think is so instructive in this psalm. One writer calls this the throbbing alteration of this passage. And you probably noticed it when you read the text. The I, me statements and then the you sections. The back and forth, the emotional whiplash that's happening there. I put these words on the screen. Listen to what it says in verses three to five. But you are holy and thrown on the praises of Israel. Our fathers trusted in you. They trusted in you and you rescued them. They cried to you and, you and were set free. They trusted in you and weren't disgraced. And then go down to verse nine. It says this, you brought me out of the womb. You have been my God from my mother's womb. So what's happening here, okay? I think what we're seeing is that Jesus is being sustained by truth. He's exhibiting this extraordinary faith. Heaven has gone completely silent. All the people are mocking him. So what would you do? Let me put this to you. What would you do in a moment like this? Well, here's what Jesus has done. Jesus rehearses the past faithfulness of God so that he can direct his heart towards future grace from God. Let me say that one more time. Jesus rehearses the past faithfulness of God so that he can direct his heart towards future grace from God. You know, you and I do this all the time, don't we? Like if you were texting your friend Sally and you said, Sally, I'm really having a hard time at work this week. I really feel like I need to get away to the beach, have a vacation. And then all of a sudden the text that comes back from Sally is her at the beach taking a selfie, right? And, she, and, it's, and you get that and you're like, wow, that's insensitive. I could have done without that selfie. But then what do you immediately do? You immediately start talking to yourself. You're like, selfie, uh, selfie. Sally is my best friend. She loves me. I bet she thought that if she did that, that it would be a real encouragement to me. What are you doing? You're comforting yourself by the truth that you know about your relationship with Sally. Friends, I think that in the midst of suffering, listen to this, in the midst of suffering, our hearts are gonna be drawn to some kind of hope, right? Some funnel of hope because you can't sustain hopeless suffering for a very long time. I love this quote by Beth Moore. It's gonna be up on your screen. She talks right to this. She says this, God never forgets his promises to us and in turn, he intends for his children never to forget his faithfulness to fulfill them. Over and over in scripture, God's people are told to actively remember all he has done on their behalf. In fact, the practice of remembering is so important to the children of God that he often diagnoses their seasons of rebellion as a serious case of forgetfulness. 
Friends, I want us to see two ways that Jesus does this in this text. Two ways that he does this. The first one's in verse four. So look down at your Bible in verse four, where it starts with, the fathers trusted in you and you rescued them. You know, you could open up to almost any page in the Old Testament and see this story kind of playing out for you. That people are, are in trouble, they cry out to God, he hears them and then he saves them. But there's one that's really famous in Exodus chapter two. Exodus chapter two, the people are live, of Israel living in Egypt. They have a new king. The king is giving them hard labor. And what happens? The people groan to God. They cry out to God and they're groaning. And listen to what it says in verses 24 and 25. I put this on the screen as well. And God heard their groaning and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And God saw the Israelites and God knew. Can there be more comforting words in your Bible than that? And God remembered and God saw and God knew. Now listen, there is certainly mystery to why God decided to wait all of the years. Why did he have to wait for Moses to be born and then live and then go away and then come back? I don't, I, I don't know all of the mystery in that, but what we do know is really clear from the text that God was not jolted out of sleep when he saw this. He remembered, he saw, and he knew. And this is what Jesus is doing right here. He's remembering this. He's going, my experience says this. My experience says that heaven's gone silent. All the people are mocking me. But what I know to be true is that God's been faithful in the past and he's gonna be faithful to me in the future. I want you to notice one other way that Jesus is sustained by faith. Look at verse nine where he starts talking about how You brought me out of the womb. I was given over to you at birth. What's Jesus saying there? I think that Jesus is saying this, that when I was my most helpless, you cared for me. When I was my most helpless, you cared for me. You know, parenting an infant teaches you something very profound about dependence, doesn't it? I think that this is what Jesus is saying here. In willingly taking on flesh, and putting himself in the place of dependence, he had to go, he had to say this to himself, maybe on night one, are Mary and Joseph gonna keep me alive? (laughs) Is a barn animal gonna eat me here on night one, right? But ultimately, this is what he's saying here. He's saying, God, ultimately, you are the one who was caring for me. You are the one who was sustaining me all along. You know, you and I have this delusion the longer we live, the more money we get, the more degrees we obtain, the more influence we stock up, that we are really the ones who are in control of our lives. But infancy is actually the greatest teacher in this regard, isn't it? You were sustained by God way before you could ever leverage your wealth or your intellect or your power. Friends, those things are not sustaining you. God is. That's what Jesus is saying here. God is sustaining me. Okay, let's look at this next underline here that he was then delivered by God. It's the next underline, delivered by God. I want us to see this detail. It's easy to miss in verse 15. He says this, my strength is dried up like baked clay. My tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You put me into the dust of death. We see all the gangs and the animals, the evil people crowd around Jesus. But here's the question for us. Who is actually the one bringing him to the cross? Who is delivering him to the dust of death? It's God the Father. Do you see that? You. He says, you delivered me to the dust of death. 
God's walking him to the hottest part of the battle, bringing him right to the center of the conflict. And here's the point I want us to see, that Jesus is delivered to death by God for our salvation. Jesus is delivered to death by God for our salvation. Our, Our home in Durham had a big brick fireplace. And one day on a Sunday morning, I got a phone call that my daughter Eden was jumping around and she hit it and got a big gash on her forehead. So Danielle took them, the girls to the emergency room and I got there just as they were taking them back, her, taking her back to get it stitched up. And so our sweet little Eden in that moment became a Stephen King character, okay? I'm not lying to you. She was going crazy. And the doctors, they're putting, and for good reason, they're putting needles and stitches and all this stuff in her head. And so she's kind of writhing and they already have those like things on her, you know, a straight jacket and she's way down, but she still is getting out. And so the doctor turns to me and says, dad, we're going to need you to lay on your daughter and help us here. So this is what happened. I laid down on Eden, four-year-old Eden. There's like five of us in the room or so. So I'm laying down on Eden, her head's going back and forth, and I grab her head like this, and I hold it as straight as I can, and Eden looks up at me with these eyes, and she said, and she didn't say this, but if she could, she was like, you're joining them? (laughs) You're on their team? What are you doing, Dad? Right? She's looking up at me like, what is your deal, dad? You know, it doesn't take a parent to imagine the heartbreak of taking your child right into the most agonizing situation. And from the outside looking in, you might look at this and say, this is a horrible mistake. Like, what is God the Father doing here? The Father isn't just silent from heaven. He's actually bringing him to the worst place, to the dust of death, But friends, it's so important for us to see that this was the plan of God to save you. This was the only way it could happen. Jesus obediently obediently went to the cross, died in our place. He doesn't shrink from the cross because he knows that there's no other way. Jesus couldn't just be made like us. Hear this. He couldn't just be made like us. It wasn't enough. He had to die for us. That's what it took This is what Jesus in our place means, that Jesus wasn't answered by God even when he cried out for help because he was standing in our place at the judgment seat of God. If you or I were to cry out at the judgment seat of God without Christ in our place, what would we hear back? We would hear silence. And that's what Jesus was taking up in my place, in your place. God the Father didn't answer, please listen to this, God the Father didn't answer Jesus so that he could answer you when you call out for salvation. God the Father brought Jesus to the dust of death so that he could bring us life through the cross. Praise God for this news. Listen to this quote by Michael Glotto. I absolutely love this quote. He says this, because Jesus sang the first verse of Psalm 22, we don't have to sing them. Instead, we sing the verses of praise with him. Because he cried out, abandoned, we sing out, found. Under the weight of our sin, he declared himself a worm and not a man so that each of us is no longer a slave but a son. The frown of God was upon his beloved son so that divine justice satisfied smiles at us. Friends, if you are visiting us here today and you're not a Christian, 
Maybe you've heard this, maybe you're investigating Christianity, or maybe you've heard a lot of these words before, and maybe it might even be making sense to you, possibly for the very first time. This is the gospel news that we exalt in every single time we gather together, that there is going to be a judgment. And you can either stand at the judgment on your own merits, or you can stand in the judgment on the merits of Jesus Christ in his righteousness. So we're calling you today, pleading with you, calling you to have faith in Christ. Let let Christ's righteousness be yours. There's another deliverance that happens here, and it's the deliverance. Jesus was delivered from death by the resurrection. I also want us to see that. It's obvious in verse 21, as I read it, the CSB actually does a wonderful way of kind of pulling this apart in verse 21 and showing us in part B there that there's this abrupt change. The, the text says, you answered me. It goes from sorrow to salvation, just like that. And so I want us just for a moment to put ourselves in that day, watching all of these events transpire together. So Jesus is hanging on the cross. All of the people are walking past him, deriding him, mocking him. Jesus is even crying out, why are you forsaking me? And then he cries out with a loud cry, it is finished, and he dies. And so all the people that have been watching this, they go away, they go back home for dinner. They think this is just another Roman execution. We're just gonna go home for dinner now. But Psalm 22 in this moment lets us behind the curtain and it pulls it back a little bit and pulls us forward and it says, look, what's happening here is victory. What you just saw is victory. It looks like his cries fell on deaf ears. It looks like God turned away, but friends, the silence of of God only lasted for three days, right? We praise God, it only lasted three days. Here's the beauty of the gospel news in in this text, that Jesus was not delivered from death, he was delivered through death to life. He was not delivered from death, he was delivered through death to life. The resurrection was God the Father answering the cry of Jesus for deliverance. Praise God for this word. Amen. So I want us to see one last area, and it's the resounding praise that happens as a response to all of the things that we saw. The resounding praise, and it's um, the answer from God, which is the resurrection that leads to praise. And it's one of the most massive offerings of praise that we have in our Bible, not just for what it says, but for where it goes, how expansive it is. And structurally, I want us to to see that it happens in like concentric circles, three concentric circles. It starts with Jesus, it goes out to the people of Israel, and then it goes to the nations and the generations. Almost like this blast radius just goes, just keeps going out and out. And so I want you to see, look at uh, your word in verse 22, it says this, I will proclaim your name to my brothers and sisters. I will praise you in the assembly. You know, I, I love that even Jesus, even Jesus loves praising what he finds most beautiful. You know, you and I do this all the time, don't we? Like if, if you love a movie, you come up to me and say, Daniel, you gotta watch this movie. If you love a new song, you say, you gotta listen to this song. But isn't it amazing to see Jesus doing the same thing? He can't help himself. He's saying God is so glorious, he's so worthy of praise, and he's calling 
everybody around him to join him in the same praise. And then I want you to see where he's doing this. I think the ESV is actually a little bit more clear. If you have an ESV, look at what it says there in verse 22. It says this, in the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. In the CSB, it says this, in the assembly, Before we talk about what that means though, I want us to look at another place that it's quoted. It's quoted in Hebrews chapter two. So these words are actually on the screen. You don't need to flip over there unless you want to. Listen to Hebrews chapter two, verse 12. And it's quoting these words in Psalm 22. For the one who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one father. That is why Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters saying, I will proclaim your name to my brothers and sisters. I will sing hymns to you in the congregation. So so what's happening here? I, I think the writer of Hebrews is looking at Psalm 22 and he's saying, this is Christ's active work in the church, active ongoing work in the church. It says that Jesus is actively, spiritually doing something among the church. And he has two things that he's doing uh, among the church, two types of activities. He's telling us about the Father and he's singing, he's joining us in our singing whenever we sing and gather with the congregation. So he's telling us about the Father and he's joining us in our singing. Now just think about how remarkable that is. You know, sometimes when I am preparing to lead worship here uh, Sunday after Sunday, um, I don't know that I introduce myself. I'm Daniel Renstrom, and uh, I usually lead the musical worship here. <laughs> Good to meet you. Um, I, I sometimes, as I'm writing out what I want to say, what I hope to say to you, I, I think to myself, I would love to say something so articulate, so helpful, so insightful, that it just wakes all of us up. It wakes all of us up from spiritual sleep and it causes us to love God and worship him. But you know what the truth of this passage is, is that Jesus does that. Every single time we gather, Jesus is at work doing that work. So here's a true statement that Jesus is the better and the greater Brook Hills worship pastor, all right? He does that work every time we gather. He's taking the message of God and he delivers it right to the heart. He melts away indifference to God and he's animating life towards God. But friends, it's not just that. He actually also joins with our singing. Just think about that for a minute. He's joining you when you sing every Sunday. It's a remarkable thought. And, it, and, and I think that this is what the verse is saying. It's saying that our, ver, our voice, our, our singing is perfected by the voice of Jesus. Our praise is perfected by his singing. Listen to also this other quote. It's gonna be up on the screen from Michael Glotto. He says, the beauty of our worship, just as our righteousness before God is not found in ourselves, but in Jesus. The voice of Jesus singing with us perfects our worship as it reaches the throne of God. While Christ's righteousness is the answer to our doubt about God's accepting us, Christ's worship is the answer to our doubt about God being pleased with our worship. In this, we see that our life with God is by grace from beginning to end. Praise God. I want us to also see the the other two concentric circles just quickly here. The second one is that he calls all of Israel to join him. He says, Jacob, Israel, everybody in the family, revere God, worship God, the God who accomplished all of this. He meticulously, thoroughly, mercifully planned your salvation, accomplished your salvation. He's the one to be praised. 
And it's for good, and he grounds this all in a reason. I want you to look at your Bibles, if you would, at verse 24. He grounds all of that praise in something he says in verse 24. Look at it. For he did not despise or abhor the torment of the oppressed. He didn't hide his face from him. He listened when he cried for help. Keep your eyes on the screen there, or your eyes on the the word, how it says, his face from him. Those are singular. That's Jesus. He listened to Jesus when he cried out for help. Christian, if you are looking for a reason to worship, if you walk in here and you're like, why why should I worship God today? If you ask yourself that question, here's, here's a wonderful answer to that question. God did not abandon Jesus in the grave and he'll never abandon you. He'll never, ever, ever abandon you. How do I know this? Because Jesus wasn't abandoned in the grave. The one who took our sins stood in our place. It's proof. The resurrection is is proof of all of this. So finally, we see this last blast radius, the last circle that happens, and it's the resounding praise that goes out even further to the nations and the generations. Listen to Psalm 22, verse 27. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord. Listen to what it says in verse 30 and 31. I think it's gonna be on the screen. Their descendants will serve him. The next generation will be told about the Lord. They will come and declare the righteousness to a people yet to be born. They will declare what has been done. Christian, in this room, living in Birmingham, Alabama in 2018, listen, you and I are a fulfillment of that verse, aren't we? We are the distant nations. (laughs) We are the distant generations that have heard and praise God for the lack of selfishness in the people that have come before us to deliver this good news to us, to risk their lives so that the good news could be taken to other nations and other generations. So many people counted their lives not so precious and worthy and they, they thought of the news as even more precious and worthy. They wanted to deliver it to other nations, other generations, other people. So here's the question I think that we should consider when we hear this. Do I love this message, this news that much? Is the overflowing joy of the gospel seen in how I, I want it spread? to other nations, other generations, if someone was to evaluate my life, not just the things I sing about on Sunday and the things I talk about in my small group, but actually the way that I live, would they be able to pick up discernible joy over the spread of this gospel news? I want you to see one last detail here, and I think it's one of the things that's most glorious about this passage. Look back in your Bible at verse 30 and 31. I'm gonna read this to us one more time. Their descendants, listen to all of the verbs here. Pay attention to the verbs that we get, the will verbs. Their descendants will serve him. The next generation will be told about the Lord. They will come and declare his righteousness to a people yet to be born. They will, they will declare what has been done. Friends, I think it's really important for you and I to remember that we are not sovereign. You're not sovereign. The nations are not sovereign. If God wills to be known, if he aims to be known, then he will be known. Can we praise God for that? He will be known. 
Friends, whether or not you or I have discernible joy over the spreading of this news is really, really important. But listen to this. Your joy in the matter will not determine whether or not God is on the move. Listen to the words of resolution. Listen to those words of resolution. I will accomplish this mission. We have the inexpressible joy of being invited by God to join this mission, his mission, And if this news has reached your ears, it's changed your life, then I wanna encourage you now to join God in what he is doing all around the world and getting this news to nations and coming generations.